In a nutshell, interoception is the ability to sense what is happening in your body and have it be communicated to you. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. If you're wondering what body image, lunch, and parole have to do with each other, then I guess you'll have to listen in when Rebecca Brum tells us a lot about the Brain Institute at Laureate and the research that's done around interoception and how it impacts those with eating disorders and really listening in, you know, different, the same experience can be interpreted different ways by different people. And she gives us a little, a few nuggets on how to approach that with our clients and patients. One thing that I really appreciated about Rebecca, she understands outpatient work. It is very, very different. She referred to it as the wild, wild west and heard other Clinicians talk about it as being on an island. And so one of her key ingredients for her seasonings is to find people to be with. Don't do this alone. So in the suggested seasonings at the bottom of your show notes, start with a heaping dose of podcasts and webinars. Add Carolyn Costin's Phases of Recovery. Simmer slowly with Nicole Siegfried. Top it off with Evelyn Triboli and How Emotions Are Made, the book. And the key ingredient is education. It's one of those overlooked and underrated things that we can do as clinicians. Enjoy. Welcome, Rebecca Brum, to our podcast. We're so excited you're here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and to be speaking with both of you. We have so many topics that we can't wait to dive in with you, but just to ease our way, a couple of just quick questions. So mountains or beach? Um, you know, I have to quickly say mountain. Uh, yeah, mountains, because there is something about seeing just a mountaintop with trees covering it that reminds me that we are one piece of a very large world and kind of puts me back into perspective and remembering that there's more connectedness than there is single and individuality. I'm finding that as we're approaching fall, maybe that more people are saying mountains. What is the weather like in Oklahoma today? Well, so surprisingly, we've had one of the longest stints of above 90 degree weather. I think we're something into like 40, 45 days. But yesterday and today have been very seasonably fall, about 60, 70 degrees. So it's lovely. Yes. I went for a walk this morning and it was 60. I'm in Dallas and I'm like, this is unheard of. I'm like maybe a little bit cold, right? Uh (laughs) Kansas City is the same way. And I love it. Uh Yeah. I love that analogy about the mountain too, and how it really reminds us that we're all really one. And I just came back from a trip from the mountains. And so I'm in a whole nother zone after being there. 
yeah, I love trees. There's just always something about trees that remind me of, of life in general. Yeah. Okay. And then breakfast or dinner? I'm definitely a dinner girl. I have two teenage sons. And so it's like hit the ground running, but then we collect at dinner time and we reflect on our days and what was meaningful and, and what we did well and what we struggled with. It just feels like it's kind of a stopping point in the day where we all connect and, and collect with one another. Aww. That's so nice. Yeah. I'm, I want to be at that table with them, just like talking about our day. <laughs> and the last icebreaker question is audiobook or paper book? Oh, I wish I was a paper book person. Um, I just feel like it is maybe the more studious thing to, to, to be, but I love, I live on audiobooks. I, I try to read at least one a month. It's sometimes I get up to two, but they're audiobooks. So mm. it's same information, but I, I like to be kind of on the move and, and invest in the time that I'm traveling. Same, same. I mean, embrace your inner audiobook lover, because I mean, if I do paper book, I tend to f- like lose myself or fall asleep or think about what else I should be doing. And so I'm on the move a lot and audio just really helps keep me learning. Mm-hmm. I, it just, in, I think I'm an, uh, an audio learner. Yeah. So you are an LPC, yes, and a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. I am the second only the second in Michigan, actually. Michigan, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm gonna bring you back a little bit because this podcast is for all levels, people just entering the field, people thinking about coming into the field, people have been in the okay. field for a really long time. And it's interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. So Abby and I are dietitians and we don't know a lot about the therapy, but all of us have to come through into this field by some kind of a board exam or licensure exam. So this may be a little bit traumatizing to bring you back to the day of your exam. You choose the exam. What was that like for you? Do you have any memories of that day and what happened or how you felt? I think about both my seed certification exam and my licensure exam, really nervous, but also feeling prepared. I make on preparedness and the idea of how, how do I get to a spot where I've done everything that I know that is my responsibility. So nervous, but, but felt good about where I was at. And, and at the same time, also having a sense of peace that whatever might happen at this part in my journey is just a part in my journey and whatever information I glean from this experience, I will take and have it make me stronger. Mm, Whether you pass or fail. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That's, that's Zen. I, (laughs) I think that maybe, wow. I bet that your clients, patients can pull a lot of that from your relationship. I was going to say like an an unheard of perspective going into such a big exam, but I wish that I had that. And even when you were talking about how you have dinner with like your, with your family, I was thinking, wow, she sounds like such an LPC. (laughs) (laughs) An awesome one. Well, and I'll I'll connect it back to the audio books. I feel like I'm always constantly trying to learn and, and I am the person who's putting self-help on my audio books or, or therapy interventions being in these fields that we're in are such gifts because we get to live what we're asking people. Absolutely. Um, to live oh, their I love that. Lives. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so what got you into the therapy field and eating disorders? Mm-hmm. So I'll say my mother was an LPC, uh, and and so we I grew up with self help therapy books in the house. Loved them, gravitated towards them. Went to graduate school for it because my husband was in graduate school, and I thought, well, I don't, I, I know school, and I'm not sure about the work world, so I'll just keep doing school. <laughs> and, and loved it, fell in love with it. It, it kind of is a second uh, language to me. Mm-hmm. And so then I graduated. I graduated when my when I was pregnant with my son, and he's 16 now, and went into practice. And then found in the small town in Michigan that I lived that people would come for eating disorder treatment and none of my colleagues, myself included, really knew what to do. And so there was at the University of Michigan, there is an IOP, but where we lived was about an hour and 45 minutes away from there. And so I would see people that I would need to send to the IOP and, and that wouldn't have follow-up care, but as they're, they're in IOP, they're driving. A friend of mine had a daughter that drove an hour and 45 minutes one way and then drove an hour and 45 minutes the other way home five days a week. Oh and so my I, gosh. I just knew her struggle of getting her daughters getting help, but they're also saddled with this huge new burden. Yeah. Um, so just felt really passionate that if I'm going to contribute something to my community, it's going to be this thing. And um, so that, that patients don't have to seek treatment somewhere that it's going to come with this extra burden. Mm. So I, I just started to listen to all the podcasts that I could, mm. all the webinars that I could, mm-hmm. um, thought just who, who knows what they're doing in this. And then what do they recommend and what are they reading and who are they listening to? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm fast forwarding through years, but then got to a point where I felt very secure, built a whole practice at, at a larger practice that I was in. Our waiting list started to get full with people that needed treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I trained other clinicians, sought out my seed certification because I thought, if you're doing this work, I want the gold standard of what's out there mm-hmm. for treatment and, and how we do this treatment. And through that, I distinctly remember Craig Johnson talking about orthostatic blood pressures and thought, oh, goodness, I haven't even thought that through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a therapist and learning about some of the medical complications, right? Absolutely. And by luck, the owner of our clinic, her sister was a nurse. And she just retired and she was kind of looking for a way to still kind of keep her skills active, but also not have to be full-time work. She came into the practice and she did orthostatic blood pressures (gasps) on patients. Fantastic. And and we built this, again, with the the guidance of my seed certification, we built an understanding with the patients that we would do this, but that they would seek medical treatment if we ever found something that was. Oh, that's wonderful. That went on to build a multidisciplinary team with a dietitian and a psychiatrist at our local hospital. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Okay, so you mentioned that you had in the beginning, was there any any of your books, podcasts, webinars, things that were truly formative that you can share with the group for you along the way? 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot, I'm sure. I don't know if there's any that stand out. I could probably give you names. So mm-hmm. I love Carolyn Costin's uh, books. Still can kind of recite some of the big things like the phases of recovery off the top of my head. The reasons why people engage in eating disorders. I have loved Nicole Siegfried's work. I have felt she's so easy to connect with. Even, you know, I'm, I'm watching her on a recorded podcast or a webinar, but just feel her presence. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn Triboli, I went through my certified intuitive eating counselor and totally fangirled over the fact that I got to speak to her <laughs> in works. that process. It is. Those are major names. And it's funny because I know, I hope that we will get into the whole interoception and the the salt water and and that. But Mm -hmm. Nicole Siegfried was sharing with me her experience of being in one of those pods or whatever they're called. And I, anyways, I'm, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, Rebecca, but when you brought up her name, I just remember the feeling of her story and experiencing that. So Carolyn Costin, huge. Abby and I are both nodding our head. It's a name that comes up a lot and all of her books. Then Evelyn Tribbley, I'm also an intuitive eating counselor now certified. I've been in the field. Yeah. I've been doing this kind of work since the early nineties and my original supervisor had the same flavor and I just never became certified until this past year. And I'm so glad that I did because yeah, you get to be in the room with them. Hundreds of studies that are supporting intuitive eating. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, both of them, um, you can get into supervision with either of them through that process. And that was wonderful. And I'll, I'll bridge kind of that gap into interoception. Intuitive eating was my first real personal experience and entryway into sensing, learning what sensing the body feels like and how it then is, it can be incorporated into therapy. I had no idea that was your intro into this. Mm-hmm. So tell us all what you're doing with, with interoception and from that learning. First, I need to ask what it is. <laughs> can you define <laughs> it for anyone and who's listening, who's saying, yes. what the heck are they talking um, about? So in, in a nutshell, interoception is the ability to sense what is happening in your body and have it be communicated to you. And I I could keep going in in some directions and and maybe I'll utilize this time, but there can be issues with accurately sensing. So your interoception accuracy can play a role in challenges with mental health and with eating disorders. So in a nutshell, it's it's your ability to sense what's going on in your body and to accurately respond to those cues. Ooh, so many things are going through my head. I don't even know where to start. So like you're trying to just, in a nutshell, say what it is. Yeah. Where do you want to take this for the newer clinician? Like where it's, it's accuracy can play a role and the challenges with mental health and eating disorders. How does it apply? Yeah. 
So I'm not sure where dietitians come in with this knowledge, but some for therapists, some of our foundational skills are in cognitive behavioral therapy. So kind of this idea that our thoughts lead to our feelings, which then lead to our beliefs and our actions. And so we always pull people back to the thought, the evaluation of the thought. The thought is where there's power to make change. And so interception really pulls me in because it makes so much sense with eating disorders that our bodies are sources of of data to be evaluated. Mm -hmm. And so we have this kind of ambivalent event that happens that has no meaning to it. And that can be uh, saying hi to somebody in the hallway. I'm glad you're giving an example. That's what I was going to ask for. So saying hi to somebody in the hallway and them looking down right away and not responding. You could say, oh, that person must have not heard me. Or, and Abby could say, oh, they must be overwhelmed today. But I could interpret it as that person doesn't like me and they look really mad at me. And we're all going to have different feelings based on that thought. And then those feelings will contribute to different behaviors for, for all of us. And so interception is kind of the idea that the data from the body also has to then be interpreted. Okay. And then we we move into feelings and behaviors. Okay. Well, I was just going to say it after hearing your example, it makes clear sense how this can relate to eating disorders and just how often they struggle with and this goes back to Carolyn Costin, but like your two halves, like, is this my eating disorder self speaking? Is this my healthy self? Do I really feel this way about myself? Like all of the things that go into that. So your example is very helpful with understanding that. Yeah, thank you. Lisa Feldman Barrett book, How Emotions Are Made, that really helped me to understand it. And, and quite honestly, I've read that book about three times okay. because it's so neuroscience deep that it takes me that long to really understand it. But she uses an example in her book where she talks about being invited a couple of times to have dinner with a man that she wasn't terribly interested in. And uh, she, she finally agreed, went out to dinner and her stomach just felt really tingly the whole time. She interpreted it as butterflies, like, wow, maybe I really like this man. Maybe this is something more than I thought. And then she went home and proceeded to have the flu for the next three days. So it just idea Yeah, so she misinterpreted that. Um, even up to a point where a study was done in Israel with judges, where they noted that the frequency of granting parole declined when it started to get close to lunchtime. And then they had lunch. And then they started granting parole with their same frequency. So they were interpreting these cues from their body as gut feelings. Oh my gosh. Is that in the book too? How emotions are made? (sighs) And I think this question, I think when we can at the baseline provide this psychoeducation to our patients, they can start to say, this is my interpretation. And they're really wired to interpret the sensation of food in their body, the sensation of hunger to be linked to some of their eating disorder behaviors. But when they can just even have the freedom to say, 
it feels like my interpretation of this is that it's dangerous or not safe for me to eat. Um, and I'm that in my body, but mm-hmm. what if it's something else? What if, Interesting. what if I have a different interpretation of this? How does it change things? Mm. So how do you help bring them to that understanding of what their interpretation means? Uh, again, I, I education is maybe one of the most underrated things that we do in, in all of our lines of work, of just being able to say, this is what we know. And this is how it can impact. So if this were the case, or have you ever had a time where you thought that it was this one thing where you interpreted it and it was different? Mm-hmm. And the idea that we are we are limited to only our experiences yeah. to make these judgments. And there are so many experiences that we haven't had. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that it's maybe something different yeah. than one that you're used to going to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's kind of the neural pathways that are built that you keep going to it. And part of the work that you're doing is helping people rebuild its neuroplastic kind of like, okay, let's start thinking, let's get curious about where it is. So you were involved in the uh, Institute for Brain Research. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, in fact, the Laureate Institute for Brain Research is housed on the bottom two levels of our building. And then the eating disorder program is housed on the top two levels of the program. So we we do a lot of work together. They do a lot of research on eating disorders. Uh, Saib Khalsa is their uh, clinical director and he is very interested in, in eating disorders research and, and came to us with an interest in that. Okay, I have to say that I'm really sad that we are coming to the end of our Laureate-sponsored professionals. To let you know a little more about Laureate, if you haven't heard the other episodes, and I really highly recommend you do just for the clinician experience, it's an intentionally small not-for-profit eating disorders program in Tulsa, Oklahoma, exceptional care for women and girls since 1989, And they provide individualized care, a nature-focused campus, relational philosophy, and dedication to eating disorders research, as you hear here today with Rebecca. And that's what sets it apart in the national treatment landscape. The program consists of independent, adolescent, and then adult programs. So please know your patients benefit from that one-to-three ratio of therapist to patient. There's full-time board-certified psychiatrist, evidence-based medical nutrition therapy, and a dedication to continuity of care. And many of the staff are certified eating disorder specialists. And one of these that's really helpful to know is that patients are treated by the same physician, therapist, and dietitian from acute level of care all the way to discharge. And then if they complete, if a patient completes an inpatient program, they're offered 30 days at no cost at the Magnolia House, which is Laureate's independent living home. Thanks to Laureate for sponsoring their wonderful clinicians. So what, what's going on there right now? Well, there's a few things. And, and in fact, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll start with one of the studies that they conducted a few years ago, but just was so informative to my practice. They used a substance called isoprinterinol. And in a nutshell, for those of us that are not medical doctors, it's a substance kind of similar to adrenaline, kind of produces that same response or your rapid heart rate, increased respiratory sensations. And they had a control group and they had a test group 
and they had random assignments about when they would give it, they would give either give either a placebo or this isoprenterinol and then ask people to rate how they felt. So with the eating disorder patients, they would have a much more pronounced experience than was to be expected from the isoprenterinol. And that only happened during during a time that it was right before a meal. And their experience, so the, I hate to use the word healthy controls, but that, that is how it's referred That's to. That's how it's worded and, in research. Um, so Got we'll, it. We'll, I'll put the asterisks around that. Okay. Um, but the healthy controls experience the sensations kind of contained from chin level to about the, let me see, the, the, the bottom of the breastbone. Mm-hmm. The experience for the patient's diagnosed with eating disorders was much more diffuse, almost about nose level to belly button level. Wow. Just kind of showing they, and I think we know this in practice, that the ability to be connected and fine-tuned into the body is where our patients are struggling. And this research really demonstrated that. That's one of my favorite research studies that they have done. Interesting. But then they've, they've gone on to complete just some fascinating work. So Liber has the first, if not the only, research center for flotation. So it's, it's flotation rest, which is reduced environmental stimulus therapy. And this is where patients, uh, patients and people float in a, an Epsom-filled, Epsom-saturated water tank that is largely devoid of any other sensation. Uh, So it's a dark experience. It's quiet that the water is room temperature. And it's an experience that's really made to really found to be kind of connected to our experience of our ourselves and our bodies. And so there's there's lots of research that shows that it has a positive effect on reducing anxiety. And So they were the first ones to say, how might this be impactful for eating disorder patients? And so the first thing that they did was look at, is it safe? Um, Because one of the effects has been to reduce blood pressure. And so that's, that's a lot of times a good thing, but not necessarily with our eating disorder patients. So they, they completed a safety study that was just published, I believe, last October that showed that it was safe for patients, mm-hmm. but something they didn't anticipate and that just really warms my heart is how positively impactful it was shown to be on body dissatisfaction. I'll refer back to Carolyn Costin's work, her stages of recovery you know, likely Beth, that, that the very last thing in treatment to recover is body image. And it's, that's probably the number one thing people ask me is how do I help improve body image for my patients? It's so enduring. It's so hard to change. A lot of times our patients get all the way through recovery and not using behaviors, but still really have these hard, impossible feelings about their bodies. So that research surprisingly showed a huge improvement in body dissatisfaction. Mm, 
I was hoping you were going to get to this because I remember attending something that you talked about this flotation rest and body image. So they just completed another round in the study that looked at safety. It was for patients that were outpatients. And so they, they wanted to fine tune it and really set the target on body dissatisfaction. And so they did a study now with those individuals at the residential level of care. And again, with healthy controls mm-hmm. and found uh, that there's a, a 5% increase in body, um, body acceptance, uh, 5% move away from uh, body image disturbance, which is huge. And I love the fact that it's non-pharmacologic. Right. So it's, it's not a, a medication. It's just something that we can do in our lives. Mm-hmm. Does this, is it lasting or how long does it last after a session? So that's, that's really interesting that you say that they did eight, eight floats, eight interventions, and it lasted throughout. And they felt very similarly that the status, the increase in results in all of their floats. So it wasn't too much different from one to eight, mm-hmm. um, but they are still, they had their last patient in March. And so they are doing a year long follow-up okay. so next March that we'll mm-hmm. be able to say uh, these results were enduring, or this is what needed to happen for them. to. Bring. Okay. Because there's these float places coming up everywhere in, ta- in towns and cities. And, and I, you know, just like any other modality, it gets to have a pop culture to it. So I, you know, th- the research you're describing is something that's still being discovered. And and you probably, I don't know if you can go into any of these just open, I don't know, businesses and, and obtain some of the similar results. You can. And I'll say I published an article in GERS talking about just from a therapeutic lens, from a practitioner lens, how somebody might utilize having a client be in a a float tank using that session. And that really ties back into interoception. What tends to happen in the float tank is that the sensations of respiration and heart rate seem to become more pronounced. So I almost liken it to an exposure and response prevention intervention. But I really think it's important that clinicians have done their work with the patient to understand. Because if you say off the bat, I want you to go do something that's going to make you sink into your body a little bit more, they are going to run for the hills. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine this becoming a staple in most eating disorder inpatient facilities? Boy, I would, I would think that that would be great. Yeah. I've, I've thought of one in my own home <laughs> because I, I is one of those practice what you preach. I love it. And it puts my mind in a, a much stronger point, a, a frame of reference after I have those experiences. But I do know the limitations of even thinking about it in my home. So, yeah, uh, but yeah. I think it would greatly contribute, especially as a seasoned meditator myself. I feel like it's taken years to get to a place where my brain can find the kind of rest that I was able to find in the float tank. And so I think that it could help to speed the process of a calm mind and a calm body for our patients. 
And as you said, it's non-medication because there's a lot with psychedelics that's coming out and, and some of those and, and the side effects that happen with that. And, and the float tanks are not without side effects for some. And what I'll say about that is really, I think it's important for if, if it's something that a practitioner wants to adopt into their, their, what they would recommend, it's really important to set patients up to succeed. Mm -hmm. Things like knowing that they don't have to stay in the water the entire time. They can ask for an open float tank. And those are, so they have some that are like shells that, that close in on you. I think they're called the bean. And that is now my favorite, but it was not my favorite to start. There you go. This is what I'm curious, your evolution with it. Yeah. yeah. It, because I know the peace and solace that comes from it, but wanted to also have some control in the experience. So open float tanks will let you raise your hand and the lights come back on and you're completely in control. I think just setting, setting the expectations and setting the stage for understanding what it's for and knowing that there's a period of riding out an increased experience of potentially anxiety and discomfort. I find as an outpatient RD that with an eating disorder patient, sometimes the thing that lingers the most is that body image piece. And when I was looking through your slides on interoception and the floating how they view their body before floating and after floating is insane. And even how they view their ideal body, the the shifts there is wild. I, I agree that I think a picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. And when I saw that, I think of just the extremes in, in our culture, but in, in eating disorders as well. I mean, you can see how the idealized versions of themselves are just so extreme and it's so pronounced how much that softens after being in the float tank. How do you determine that? Because people listening may not have seen the slides or seen you speak. Mm -hmm. So they utilize what's called the photographic figure rating scale. And it's, I think there have been different versions of not that exact name, but different versions that are out there. But um, I like this one the most because it's, it's so lifelike and, and they just look at different bodies and kind of uh, identify with, this is what it feels like in my body. And this is what it's where I would like to be. Mm-hmm. And so those idealized versions, if you can if you look at the slides or what you and I might say, boy, we, we know that's a, um, an obviously uh, starved body. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say as a practitioner, this brought so much insight to me, seeing what they really would like themselves to look like. This is an, I mean, I wish I could show everybody, but it is an extremely malnourished image. But then after after they do the floating, their ideal body, it in the shore, it might not be where their body is meant to be, but still how more nourished this ideal body looks is how much it, more comfortable they would be comfortable. Yeah, they would be, that yeah. is more well-nourished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had talked about, and, and Rebecca, let's be real here. We are, before we hit record, 
there were so many things that you have to offer people and me and Abby and all of us professionals in the field that we had said we need to maybe have another a session or episode with you. And I'm going to say for the records, Abby, that we are going to have Rebecca back because there's this whole piece that I really want to touch on at some point of the outpatient practice and how those of us, I mean, you used a term of, of someone who described it. How do you, how, just to kind of tee it off for the next episode that we're going to dive into. We had a, uh, we invite private practice and and outpatient practitioners to connect with us through site visit or through virtual site visit during COVID times. But one of them said to me, outpatient is like the wild, wild west. And I knew from my own experience exactly what she meant, that that you are really kind of fighting for the resources that you can get. And most patients, you are educating other professionals into eating disorders and what you need and how you need them to contribute to care. So yeah. I, I, I have walked that journey and fought um, tooth and nail to, to be able to build some of those things and would love to help other outpatient providers build mm-hmm. those things. Okay. Yeah. We're going to need to springboard off of that because your intuitive eating training, kind of the interoceptive springboarded you into what we spent most of our time talking about, which is a a modality that looks very promising. And so taking it a step further, like how do the rest of us in this field, that's just one minute of one session of one, whatever uh, that we're doing while we're building our teams and trying really hard to support our clients in the office, in their homes, et cetera. So we are definitely going to have to have Rebecca back, Abby. Absolutely. I mean, pull my leg, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be happy to be back. I I really enjoyed speaking with you guys. We appreciate Laureate for sharing you with us today too, because we know that you are very busy. Many of us are um, over the top, just trying to, to help as many people as we can during this, this time, this year, this difficult time. So appreciations to Laureate too, for sharing you with us today. Yes. Yes. I I think the biggest thing that we do is contribute to our field and, and then that's how we grow bigger than just one person in one uh, facility. Mm -hmm. Before we let you go, Rebecca, my final question for you. So taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? And you know, this is, it, yeah, it's a big question. So take your time. Well, I think that I've, I've kind of alluded to the answer to that earlier. Um, the idea of just not being alone um, in, in Midland, Michigan, I felt very alone, felt very, uh, that I was kind of creating things and sometimes feeling uncertain about things as I moved forward. And I always try to say when we connect with outpatient providers that please utilize the Laureate as a resource. We are so lucky to have the the medical staff, the dietetic staff, the therapy staff, the nursing staff that we have and, and have those people at our fingertips. And I know that because I've lived that outpatient work that I would truly welcome anybody reaching out 
who has said, who needs to say, Hey, I don't know what to do in this situation. So that would be my advice to somebody starting out in the field is there's, there's not a reason to feel alone. The eating disorder community is one that is an incredibly helpful, welcoming community. There are resources out there that can really change the game for you if you are willing to grow that expertise. And for those listening who might want to reach out, what is a a preferred email address for you? Or is that what you prefer? Yeah, I think email is the best way to catch me. It is rkbrum, B-R-U-M-M, at St. Francis. And St. is spelled out. And Francis is with an I, dot com. Awesome. It is really great because another thing that I know that Laureate does is some case consult groups and they're small and cozy. And now that you know what Rebecca's background is in outpatient and the wild, wild west and building that team, because that was one of my things that I was just so impressed with Laureate for offering case consults for dietitians, for therapists, for medical providers. It's just a a resource for all of us. And I think we need to do that for one another. So I'm I'm able to hear you say that that's meaningful and impactful in the community. It is. And one of my my criticisms in my head was, well, they don't understand because they're inpatient. Like the, when I worked inpatient, we had the full team. It's this big basket and you have full understanding of what's happening for that client 24-7. But you've been there and done that. So your your lens for those clinicians who get to sit in are is really in from an outpatient setting. You understand. Yes, and it's important to me that the resources that we offer are applicable in a setting where you're sitting down with that patient maybe just one hour a week at that. Right. Uh, Thank you so much. Rebecca Brum, we are so happy that you joined us today. To be continued for sure. (laughs) Looking forward to part two. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.